0: This week, a closer look at mental health in Minnesota in the wake of the troubling news concerning Minnesota Viking Everson Griffin. Prince receives the U of M's highest honor, and NFL Hall of Famer and former Golden Gopher Tony Dungy returns to his alma mater for a special visit. But first, a major milestone in Minnesota this week, even as the priest sex abuse scandal shakes the Catholic Church across the globe, placing a major challenge before Pope Francis. MN's Bill Werner joins us with details.
1: Scott, a federal judge this week, approved a $210 million settlement between the Archdiocese of St. Paul and Minneapolis and victims of priest sex abuse, who overwhelmingly voted for that agreement last week. Archbishop Bernard Hebda told survivors in court, quote, I am so very sorry for the horrific things done to you by people you should have been able to trust. The Archbishop added, Your persistence and courage have made a huge difference. You have been the catalyst for needed change. The practices, procedures, and audits we have adopted to stop future abuse may not be enough to restore your trust or belief in the church, understandably so, but the changes you insisted upon are keeping kids safer right now. Thank you for that. Unquote Archbishop Bernard Hebda. Outside the courtroom, the Archbishop said to reporters, How sorry we are for what, what
2: transpired, and and how we recognize that that's had such a devastating effect, not only on the lives of those who, who were hurt, Uh, but also on their families and on their loved ones and indeed on many others in the church who have lost trust.
1: Mike Finnegan is with Jeff Anderson and Associates, the law firm that has been working on the priest sex abuse issue for
3: decades. It's been a a long court battle and even longer uh, struggle and battle for the majority of the survivors here and uh, for them, some of them the Wounds and the abuse happened uh, decades ago, and they've been fighting to get to this day and to make sure that kids are better protected. And so today was a, a, a big day for them and a, a big day for us in the struggle as well.
1: The question everyone will have is, has justice been
3: done? I think as much as uh, justice can be done within a court system and within a bankruptcy, it has been. Um, but like I said, uh, or like I've said in the past, there's no amount of money and nothing that can take back and make right what happened to these people and what happened to the survivors. Um, but I do think that within this process, this is you know, the best that, that could be done justice-wise. Do you feel
1: that um, uh, that there are adequate protections in place to prevent this from ever happening again?
3: I think that there's still a whole lot of work to do to every day, make sure that the protections are the best that they can be. Uh, But I do believe that the protections that are in place are the best that are, that are there in the Catholic church right now. Uh, But like I said, that doesn't mean that, that we don't have a whole lot of room to get better and all of us on our side and on the Archdiocese side to constantly never lose focus of that and, Always make sure that, that what's happening is the safest for kids. Archbishop
1: Hebda on that same topic.
2: We recognize that it's really through the courageous involvement of survivors uh, that we've had a chance, uh, with the, the help of the court and Ramsey County, uh, to make sure that our uh, safe environment protocols, that our uh, policies and audits and processes, procedures are all the things that we, the best things that we would be able to do uh... to keep uh... children safe that for me is very important the archbishop added our hope is that even though we recognize that the monetary um, uh, settlement is just a, a, a part of uh, establishing some justice that we hope that that is something that brings some sense that justice has been done and that that you know, ultimately is going to bring some healing into the lives of those who have been hurt by uh, by priests or by cover-ups, or by others uh, working on the part of the church.
1: But this week's settlement does not put the issue to rest in Minnesota, because survivors and their legal counsel allege that not only did church officials know about the abuse, some of them covered it up to protect errant priests. We explored that further with attorney Mike Finnegan. It seems like, well, I don't want to put any words in the archbishop's mouth, certainly, but it sounds like, they are, like his statement is Im- implying that the cover-up has been dealt with.
3: Well, w- would you agree with that? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that the, the real measure of, uh, of the cover-up being dealt with, there's two pieces to it. One was for there to be light put on that situation, so transparency on what the abuse was what the archbishops knew, what all the top officials knew, that's been done, largely been done by the survivors forcing the archdiocese to do that. But the second piece of that is accountability for those who covered up, those that protected offenders, and that piece is the piece that's been lacking and is still lacking, Uh, and it's something that we have pushed uh, the Vatican and the Pope to do, and have pushed bishops to do, and Thus far, they haven't gone that far and done that.
1: The Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis did not respond to our request for an interview specifically about the allegations of cover-up, instead referring to a statement that they issued earlier when Attorney Jeff Anderson called for grand jury investigations of Catholic dioceses in Minnesota. That statement says in part that when Anderson in 2015 called for an investigation of the Archdiocese, quote, "...we cooperated with that investigation and would cooperate with any further investigation." We were disappointed that Mr. Anderson criticized the bankruptcy process as a means of concealing the truth. There has been disclosure by the Archdiocese at every step of the bankruptcy process. For years now, the Archdiocese has worked cooperatively with Jeff Anderson's office to continue disclosing the names of priests with substantiated claims of sexual abuse of a minor as they come to our attention. That process remains ongoing. Unquote, statement from the Archdiocese of St. Paul and Minneapolis. And, as Governor Mark Dayton prepared for his meeting with county attorneys about possible grand jury investigations, we asked Victim's Attorney Finnegan, would you have a word for the Governor uh, prior to that?
3: I would, and the the message that I have to him and each of the county attorneys is that that all the survivors of child sex abuse and all those kids that are out there right now need the Governor and each one of those county attorneys. To put light on this and to make sure that, that everything is transparent so that no further kids have to go through what these survivors had to go through.
0: Scott, thank you Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this.
2: Welcome back to the dog show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch-snuggling, ball-chasing, face-licking, tail-wagging, backyard-hanging, and of course, companionship. And what breed would you say Satchmo is? I'd have to go with maybe a lavish, terrier-hound, chihuahua-looking kind of mix. Tremendous dog. I'd also like to point out Satchmo's coloring, a white, gray, brown, black brindle, simply marvelous. You know, it's such a treat to watch a dog like this. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive. And now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, oh, the happy dance, so common with this group. And finally, the loving face lick. It's great how he just gets in there and, well, licks. Fantastic. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchma is to meet one. Visit the theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United
0: States, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The recent struggles of Vikings player Everson Griffin is a reminder that mental health issues are real, common, and they affect thousands of Minnesota families every day. MNN's Tasha Radel has more.
4: Everson Griffin's situation made headlines this past week, bringing the topic of mental health front and center. Griffin spent time in a Twin Cities facility to undergo a mental health evaluation. He missed two games, including this past Thursday night's contest in Los Angeles. Coach Mike Zimmer.
5: The only thing I'm really concerned about for Everson isn't anything to do with football. It's about uh, him getting better and uh, in the five years that I've been here I've always loved Everson the the effort that he puts out the work that he does the chance to count on him in game time and you know even in practice so he's always been a uh, really really good model for us and uh, obviously he's going through some tough times now.
4: Griffin's teammate, Kurt Cousins. We just want to be supportive and help however we can,
1: make ourselves available, and we just want what's best for Everson and for his family. So that's where our you know minds and hearts are at, and then we just got to go play a football game and do our best.
4: Coach Zimmer says the Vikings are committed to helping Griffin.
5: Quite honestly, we have a very, very good support program. Our owners do an unbelievable job of giving these players uh, all the resources that they need if we have to bring in experts from some other place. Or we have to. He has to go see other people. Um, our owners are outstanding with, with that. So we're going to do everything possible that we can, not only for Everson, but to help everybody on our team.
4: Joining me now is Sue Abder-Holden, Executive Director of NAMI Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So Sue, how many people suffer from mental illness?
6: Um, so one in five people are affected by mental illness, and mental illnesses affect everyone. It doesn't matter whether you're you know, a movie star, a doctor, a teacher, an athlete. It impacts everyone, um, and I think that's really important to know. No one's immune.
4: I understand mental illness can affect anyone at any age.
6: It really does. Now, we do know that half of all mental illnesses emerge by the age of 14, and about 75% uh, by the age of 24. So it is kind of a more of a young person's illness, but it can develop um, clearly um, after the age of 24 as well.
4: It seems like there's been a stigma surrounding mental illness for years. However, with the incident involving Everson Griffin, it seems like the support, I guess, is mixed and we may be moving in the right direction.
6: Um, I would agree. I think the public attitudes have been negative, which has led, frankly, to discrimination against people with mental illnesses. But in this particular situation, while there have been some kind of negative, um, really disrespectful comments, um, by and large, most of them have been very positive, have really wished him well, um, really hoped for recovery for him. And I think that's really important.
4: And that's what often people. Oh, Oh, Go ahead.
6: I was going to say, people with mental illnesses don't receive get well cards when they're hospitalized. The families don't receive, you know, meals or a hot dish, kind of that community support. And so to see community support come out for him is really makes me hopeful for the future.
4: So do you encourage someone with mental illness to seek treatment, perhaps begin with their primary doctor?
6: Absolutely. Um, And you want to seek help early, you know, as with any illness. Early identification and treatment yields the best outcomes, And so we want people not to be afraid or nervous. You can reach out to your family physician. Um, you can call you know, the back of your insurance card to find out what therapists are in your uh, insurance network. Um, but don't wait. Don't let it get worse. Intervene right away.
4: From what you're saying, it sounds like recovery is absolutely possible. Sometimes it takes a little while to figure
6: out you know, what medications will work and what therapy is really working. Um, But most people actually do get better, and I think that's really important.
4: I'm visiting with Sue Abderholden, Executive Director of NAMI Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Sue, I understand that there's a legislative mental health network in the state that represents about 40 health organizations around the state that focus on mental health. And one of the goals is to treat mental health like any other illness. Now, can you explain that?
6: Yeah, so we're looking at a number of proposals um, to really Start treating uh, mental health treatment the same as other healthcare conditions. So things like enforcing um, the current mental health parity law, um, looking at um, kind of what we call the flow issues in our system. So do we have enough hospital beds? Why are people boarding in emergency rooms? Uh, why are people stuck at the Anoka Regional Treatment Center waiting for affordable housing in the community? Mm-hmm. Um, sorry about that. So just you know, really looking at. Um, the entire uh, service system.
4: Sue, we're about out of time. Any final thoughts?
6: Um, Just that if people, you know, wanted to learn more about specific illnesses or we have free classes for family members, I just encourage people to go to our website, um, which is uh, NAMIMN.org.
4: Thanks again to my guest, Sue Abderholden, Executive Director of NAMI Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Again, for more information, you can head to NAMI's website at namimn.org. Back to you, Scott.
0: Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters, I'm Scott Peterson. This week was a special one for Prince's family, friends, and fans. The music icon received an Honorary Doctor of Humane Letters degree from the University of Minnesota, the school's highest honor. It was a long time in coming. In fact, the process began while Prince was still alive. University School of Music director Michael Kim began the night with a reminder of just how exceptional Prince was.
7: Prince was a visionary 21st century artist in the 20th century who was way ahead of the curve on so many fronts. His sense of social justice and especially his understanding of how the internet would allow himself and other musicians to bring music directly to the masses with minimal bureaucracy, which I like, and that was uncanny and deadly accurate. We have only just begun to catch up with him and come to terms with his musical vision. This event is therefore our opportunity as the School Music to humbly thank him on behalf of all musicians and fans for that musical vision. His great service to the music industry for the very positive and profound influence he has exerted on young musicians globally, and for his philanthropic generosity to our community. Anonymous. When I first arrived here, I asked how Prince had responded when earlier told that the U was considering him for this honorary degree. I was told that he was apparently quite pleased, simply responding, cool. (laughs) Prince Rogers Nelson, we are truly sad that you can't be with us this evening, but we sincerely hope that tonight's event, a tribute to incredible musicianship, is cool.
0: Professor Elliot Powell teaches a Prince class at the U. and noted that the evening's honorary degree ceremony coincided with the 34th anniversary of "Purple Rain" being released as a single in the U.S. Powell praised Prince's versatility.
8: He was almost a genius of genre. When people say Prince plays everything, and they, they kind of so usually talking about instrumentation, right? Sort of the 28 instruments that Prince played. But I think we can also think of this in terms of genre. The Prince's music sort of gives us, as we heard today, as Professor Kim has already noted, jazz and rock and R&B and soul and gospel and pop and funk and punk and new wave and rap and classical and, and, and. And very much as always, when Prince does something, he does it damn well. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Powell put in perspective what the night was all about
8: So tonight's ceremony and this honorary degree Are very much extensions of such a gratitude To so thank him for all that he's done and, and to thank him for basically all that his work will continue to do Really for the city and the state and for music For those of us who find music as a space, as a place, as an ideal, as a kind of utopia Through which we might imagine a different, a more equitable, and a more just world Thank you
0: Demita from St. Paul has been a Prince fan since almost the beginning. She attended the U of M ceremony with her parents, who she says are almost bigger fans than she is. Demita recounts when she was lucky enough to see Prince in concert during one of his creative peaks.
8: December 24th, 1984, and I remember that because that's when I first started working for the state of Minnesota, and I didn't know we had to work on Christmas Eve, and I said, i got to go see Prince. <laughs> And so um, my boss let me go, even though I just started.
0: (laughs) Darren Rocha was on the U's Board of Regents and helped get the ball rolling on giving Prince an honorary doctorate many years ago. He described the impact Prince had on him as a young man growing up in Minnesota. For people of my generation, especially
9: those raised in Minnesota, Prince was the soundtrack of our youth. We all have special memories related to his music. While I was a fan of his pre-Purple Rain work, I especially remember being 16, and I was driving past the old Creasel farm in rural Still County the first time I heard When Doves Cry. I noticed there was no bass line in the song, although it took me a while to figure that out, and I thought, this guy is a mad genius. Although he was already well established by that point, and we've heard from Dr. Powell, uh, who beautifully detailed his contributions, his contributions to music and film were just getting started. My first realization of Prince's international impact was when the university sent me to study a semester in Paris in the fall of 1987. After weeks of frustration trying to explain to my international schoolmates where Minnesota is, (laughs) you know it's coming, I discovered that telling them that I'm from where Prince is from led them to believe that I came from the coolest place on earth.
0: Of course, you can't have a ceremony honoring Prince without music, and there was plenty of it. Several times throughout the night, university students joined a band of Prince All-Stars, including members of the new power generation, the time, and the family to play Prince Classics. Jazz ensemble student Nathan Loesch played trumpet at the ceremony. It was pretty unreal to be able to play with some of these uh, fantastic players that you kind of hear about, but you never actually see. And it was really cool to just kind of like uh, like get to know them as people rather than like these big big stars that you hear about as opposed to so like getting to like meet them and see that they're human too. It's kind of kind of nice as a young musician trying to figure that out. Chris Pecoraro is part of the Jazz Ensemble Rhythm Section.
8: I was just honored to be able to celebrate Prince's
0: music with all those people and just the happy energy in the room. It was just great. Prince's sister Tyka Nelson accepted the honorary degree on her brother's behalf.
6: It means everything to me. This one is special, this award, because he knew it was coming. Unlike some of the other awards that i've picked up for him he didn't know about this one we waited for it my mom would you know my mom told me yeah prince is getting the doctorate so it's been going on for quite a few years so this one is very special
0: to cap off the night the band played an emotional purple rain with tyke nelson taking the lead yeah
8: yeah never meant to cause you any sorrow
0: Dr. Prince is the 274th person to receive an honorary doctorate from the U. Other recipients include poet Maya Angelou, cartoonist Charles Schultz, and politician Hubert Humphrey. All told, the whole evening was, in a word, cool. Yeah. Thank you guys so, so, so very much. Minnesota Matters returns after this.
2: Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting.
1: Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A. Put yourself in her shoes? How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she she has split ends.
10: B. Console her. Oh, sweetie, this is gonna happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C.
1: Take charge.
10: Gotta get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to man to man mano a mano. Hey, Steve, it's now a good time. No.
1: Welcome
0: back to Minnesota Matters. The University of Minnesota welcomed back one of its most famous alums earlier this month. Former Golden Gopher football quarterback Tony Dungy returned to his alma mater as part of the Pro Football Hall of Fame Hometown Heroes program. Dungy grew up in Jackson, Michigan, but came to the U of M after high school. He was the starting quarterback for the Gophers from 1974 through 1976. m and sports correspondent Corbu Status had a chance to sit down with Dungy when he was back on campus. Here's that conversation on Minnesota Matters.
10: Well, Coach, let's start with uh, what it means to you to be able to return to Minnesota and present this plaque as the
11: hometown Hall of Fame. It is really unbelievable, the special memories that uh, I have of my career here, but uh, more to say thank you for helping me grow as as a person and develop into the the coach that I end up being. I'm I'm so happy to, to be able to do this.
10: I know that faith is a huge part of your life. Is that always been a huge part of your life, or is that something before the University of Minnesota,
11: after? When did that come along? Uh, well, my parents started that, uh, that Christian background in me, and I, I'd have to say it really started growing when I got to the NFL and got to the Pittsburgh Steelers, but it's certainly been a part of my life uh, as far back as I can remember, trying to honor the Lord and do things the right way.
10: What is your message as you go around to, to chat with and read to the students at the elementary schools with the books that you and your wife read? Is there an overarching
11: message that you want to pass along? The message is to get kids to dream and to think about um, the future. and. You know, to tell them, hey, I was in this first grade class or second grade class at one time and just uh, didn't know what was going to happen in my life, but wanted to explore everything and not limit yourself, not uh, put yourself in a box. Hey, if you want to be an astronaut, go for it. You know, if you want to be a professional football coach, go for it. And you you never know where the Lord's going to take you. Would little Tony, in his wildest dreams, believe where you are now? No, uh, not at all. You know, you think about, boy, I'd love to play in the NFL. I'd love to catch the winning touchdown pass in the Super Bowl, things like that. But as far as uh, coaching in the NFL, Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, broadcasting on TV, never would have dreamed any of that.
10: Are you still able to come back and get nostalgic, even though it does look so different?
11: No, it is very nostalgic. As I was walking through yesterday and going through the the kind of the memorial and the the Gophers Hall of Fame and seeing names and guys that I went to school with, guys that I watched when I was a kid play, and then um, people that have since gone through just some some great memories of of being here with with Flip Saunders and Paul Molitor and uh, watching Jim Brewer play and uh, the hockey players. I I knew very little about hockey until Russ Anderson, one of my football teammates played on the hockey team we started going to the games and then I was able to when I got to the Steelers uh, and those guys were mm-hmm. on the Olympic team so you know I know those guys <laughs> I, I went to school with them and it, it just uh, was thrilling for me to think back to just all the specials and the coaches that I had here you know coach Brooks and the, the Olympic hockey and Uh, coach griak and the track team and and some of my football coaches uh just guys who helped you grow as, as people not just athletes
10: where do you think the biggest change has come in in the time since you were a player and even since you were a coach and where football is now compared to where it was even just 10 years ago
11: I think the, the technology of it and uh, just the, the skill level. And you see, especially in, in the passing game in, in football, uh, defending the pass and throwing the ball, um, they've come so far. But it's just fun to watch, and it, it's the excitement level is much higher, I think.
10: What's the most important thing for all college athletes to know as they get through life and go through school?
11: You know, when I came here, Jim Brewer uh, stopped me when I first got on campus as a freshman, and and he was an Olympian, number one draft choice in the NBA, and uh, he was one of my heroes, and he said, hey, you're going to have a great opportunity here to play But make sure you get your degree. If you come here for four years and don't end up with your degree, you're only cheating yourself. And and you're the worst person to cheat. And I I thought about that. And from that moment on, I wanted to graduate in four years like he did. And it it was the best advice I could have ever gotten. Coach, thanks a lot. Really appreciate your time. Oh, it's great being here. And just, again, tremendous memories. Thank you.
0: That's Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy and MNN sports correspondent Corbu Status. Dungy currently works on the NBC Sunday Night Football broadcast during the pregame and postgame television shows. The new plaque will be placed at TCF Bank Stadium on campus. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you for tuning in, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.